y'all. Welcome to another episode of The Drip, the podcast where four academics of color sit around and discuss great books. Each episode features a free-flowing conversation about one book that leads us to a broader conversation about race, culture, and politics, all the things that keep us gabbing when we're hanging out in coffee shops or in each other's homes, or when each of us are still in our own homes because we are still trying to keep ourselves, our loved ones, and even people we don't like safe and healthy. And I have no idea when y'all might have access to the vaccine, but I hope that you take it when offered so that we can all get back to doing hygienic, hygienically questionable things in indoor spaces sooner than later. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm Anita Chikator, the host for the show, and I teach in the Department of Educational Studies at Carleton College. Todd. I'm Todd Lawrence. I teach at the University of St. Thomas, African-American Literature and Culture, Folklore, and Cultural Studies. Thank you, Crystal. Hi, everyone. I'm Crystal Moten, and I'm a museum professional focusing on African-American history living in the Washington, D.C. area. Woof. Thank you. Adriana. I'm Adriana Estel. I teach English and American Studies at Carleton College. And I just had this moment where I waved to my crew as if like <laughs> all of you in podcast land could see me. Um, that's it. We have been here for years, I think. <laughs> <laughs> We don't know what day or year or century it is. It's fine. But we are excited to be discussing Nella Larson's 1928 novel, oh, sorry, 1929 novel, Passing. Larson was an American novelist of the Harlem Renaissance. She had worked as a nurse and a librarian. She has she published two novels, Quicksand and Passing, and a few short stories. She was the first African-American woman to receive a Guggenheim Fellowship. And just so y'all know, there is a movie version of Passing that is set to be released sometime this year with Tessa Thompson and Ruth Nega. Um, I guess we'll look out for that. And also, before we dig in, spoiler alert, just a reminder that when we discuss our books, we will talk about everything, as you should know. We call ourselves the All Spoilers Collective, so consider this your perpetual, universal, all-encompassing spoiler alert. Um, and the book definitely has some like pretty shocking plot turn twists. So definitely read the book first if you haven't. And yes. you know, consider this your, we've, we've given you the warning. <laughs> we yes. are going to spoil. Yes. We're going to spoil. Yes. Um, all right. So we wanted to start out with sort of this broad question. And, you know, it's kind of a fun one to think about for the podcast since kind of what we do is read books, right? So kind of this notion of that Adriana brought up about just like, reading as a troubling act, right? Kind of thinking, um, A, about sort of thinking about the narrator of the book and sort of whether or not, you know, she's trustworthy and sort of what she's telling us and how do we know. Uh, but also kind of obviously a lot of this book is about reading bodies and reading sort of clues as to like who people are. So yeah, what do y'all have to say about that? I think it's such a great question to start with. And at the same time, I have to say I'm a little nervous about this conversation because I really love this novel. And I don't want to do it an injustice as we talk about it. So I'm like, oh, gosh, I hope I can, you know, explain my thinking about um, Irene as this unreliable narrator in a way that makes sense to all of you. Um, but one of the things that really grabs me about Irene at the outset of this novel and that and that as we move through the novel, we learn more and more densely is that um, this is a singular narrator, right? We are seeing everything through her eyes. We get nothing really from other characters' points of view. And that that vision of hers is actually very, um, I mean, I think for me, the first time I read this novel, the moment when I it dawned on me, oh my God, Irene, I'm not sure I trust what she's seen, is when she is talking about her husband, Brian. 
And um, she has this moment where she's talking about his restlessness, which comes up throughout the novel. And she's like, but this restlessness, is it, is it the same thing? Am, am I seeing him correctly? Not with that language, but she's realizing that her way of seeing him, which she had trusted before, and she thought she was doing it all correctly before, she's not sure she is anymore. And then she like basically goes and like, oh yeah, no, I'm totally seeing this clearly. He's in love with Claire. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. And what that does when I go back to the beginning of the novel and I kind of read the whole thing as a piece is I want us to remember that it starts out with um, Irene getting this letter from Claire. And so that the whole novel is really kind of like um, not quite bookended, but the, the first half of the novel is bookended by Claire's letter, by the sense in which the letter sends Irene to remember this past moment with Claire, this August in Chicago. And all of it filtered through her own emotional, you know, understanding of that moment, her humiliation, her fear. Um, and so, I mean, maybe untrustworthy narrator is less apt than a narrator who's incredibly emotional, but is really trying not to be. And thus we, you know, she's hiding the truth of some things in order to not have to reveal her emotions. Yeah, I, I think I love everything you just said. And I think I would only add that, you know, it, a lot of times when, when you say unreliable narrator, especially to students, they think that it means that the narrator is lying to you, which is not necessarily the case. In fact, most of the time, that's not the case. Um, and I think here, um, she's not lying to us. I think a lot of times she's, she's not, she's feeling things that um, are not necessarily based upon evidence or, you know, she's, she's, Deluded seems like a strong word, but she's confused a lot of the time, right? And so some of the things that she's perceiving are probably not accurate, but they're colored so much by how she feels about uh, her husband or how she feels about Claire. I mean, Claire is such this kind of like uh, all-encompassing sort of like, you know, her name is Claire, like she's light, right? Yeah, she's light. Yeah, yeah. And, but she's the she's so bright that she just blots out everything else in the room. And so when when Irene's with her. Irene can't think straight. Mm. Irene is both, you know, like captivated by her presence in the sense of she has maybe some sort of de desire for Claire that she can't really admit about, or she has this fear of Claire, or she maybe wants to kill her. You know, like so. There's all of these sort of complex feelings that she has that um, maybe get in the way of her being able to really tell the story to us in a, you know, air quote objective way, right? Well, because she can't tell it to herself. That, right. you, you, you put it perfectly, Todd. And I just wanted to say one last thing about this, which is that um, like the part uh, or like part one, chapter two starts with that moment where um, Irene goes to the hotel in Chicago that is clearly not open to blacks, right? Um, but she passes enough so she can go in. And then she's really surprised when this white woman comes in and starts staring at her. And she, at first she's afraid she's gonna be outed. But instead, it's Claire. And so she realizes, oh, she's not white either. And then she goes into this long monologue. Okay, I might be exaggerating the long, but she goes into a monologue about how she's so good at detecting race. She always knows when there are Black people in the room. And so we already see, like, way at the beginning of the novel, the way in which Irene both has a sense of herself as someone who's so good at reading people, so good at reading race, and is so terribly bad at it. 
Go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say, I just want to jump in um, a little bit because I was, I was kind of um, grappling with calling um, Claire, not Claire, Irene, unreliable or untrustworthy, partially because I think that places a lot of expectations or it places a lot of responsibility on her as the kind of narrator um, to kind of tell us a story. Like we're, we're assuming that the story that maybe she's going to give is going to be like some, you know, clear story that we can understand. Um, and so, I don't know, I, I just feel I'm grappling with kind of referring to her or um, thinking about her as unreliable because you know, whether or not we can believe the reality of whatever story she's telling us, this is perhaps the the way she's experiencing and understanding whatever she's encountering. And uh, who are we to say that that is, you know, unreliable or that it's it's a it's it's um an incorrect way. And then, but also, I do um, your point about there being no other points of view mm-hmm. in the novel with which we can compare right that that is that 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 struck me too but i'm just a little bit i'm just i'm just grappling with this idea that um again that she's an unreliable um narrator partially because if this is her experience who are who are who are we as the reader to say that you know she's unreliable especially when we don't have any other points of view so that's so i'm just i'm just grappling with um with and it, well, yeah, and I guess I feel like untrusty untrustworthiness or like unreliability. It's like there is no like truth, right? Like we don't know. Like we don't know if like Brian and Claire were having an affair. We don't know anything was happening. We don't know what happens in the end, right? Like we don't right. know if like Claire fell out or if she got pushed, right? So I think it's like interesting to kind of think about, right? There's like a lot that maybe we like bring into this as well, and maybe that's what you're saying too, Crystal, right? Like in some ways, like maybe there's sort of expectations that we have about how it should play out or will play out or has played out in terms of like um, what we think should happen or has happened. And like, in terms of like Irene's take on things. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's why I would say this is not a novel about race, right? It's a novel about reading and perceiving race mm-hmm. and about the stories we tell about race. Which um, I think is also, also about, about race. race. Also about yeah, race. I, I, agree, I agree. get this difference that I'm trying to get at, which is like it's a it, this is a novel that's really concerned with, um, y- yes, uh, Irene's emotional story is real, right? And I think she's a character we're supposed to feel a lot of empathy for, mm-hmm. right? At the same time, um, she is like this, like deeply troubled kind of narrator that we see increasingly as we go on. Um, and the novel doesn't shy away from that, right? Th- that's what the novel is curious about. How in the world does this woman who, um, you know, in some ways has everything she needs get so deeply unbalanced? How does she misread the world around her so much and so so consistently? Do you always misreading it? I mean, I guess that's, I, I, I don't know, right? Like how, you know, like, yes, like in that example that you gave, like when she's at the restaurant and like initially she doesn't realize that. I mean, Ada, she knows Claire and like that Claire, but why are we sort of assuming that she's always misreading, misreading. it? Misreading. I think, well, I mean, 
Brian's not having an affair with Claire. No, he's not. How do we know? She says that there's no evidence for it. She says, I'm feeling this. She's like, what is the evidence? There is no evidence. But it's kind of like like, people saying sometimes when you're like something racist or something racist happened to me, people are like, there's no evidence, but you like feel it. Like you, you know? Well, yeah, I don't, I hear that. But I, I, I just think, so one, one thing I asked you guys before we started, like, uh, can we, should we talk at all about modernism? And everyone's like, no, (laughs) but I want to bring it up here. <laughs> I want to bring it up here because genre. Um, okay, let's talk about genre. Well, genre. The, the, only reason, the only reason I think it might be germane to this conversation is because um, I think, in a way, that the sort of um, literary uh, trend that that preceded this, which would be realism, especially in the United States, um, it's this is different from realism because this is as a modernist text is an attempt to render human consciousness on the page and the Mm -hmm. complexity of human consciousness. Like if this were a realist text, it would just, yeah, we would just see what's happening, what people are doing, how this person responds to this person. Mm -hmm. And we really want to go into the kind of intricacies of their, you know, sort of cognitive processing of what's happening to them, not nearly as much as we get here. So I think that's a really important aspect of this book. And so, I think we're supposed to be questioning the things that she's saying that she's so sure about. Um, that, and she questions it. You're right. 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 And then sort sometimes like, yeah. she's sure. And then sometimes she's not sure. And I think, you know, as Adriana said before, I mean, one of the biggest kind of, um, you know, psychological things that she does is to project how she feels on someone else. Right. Like her desire. I think she's in love with Claire, Claire. Mm-hmm. and she projects that on Brian. Mm-hmm. Right. Because she can't really like accept it. Um, and her anger, she she projects it on other people, right? Um, so I just think like we're we're supposed to really kind of get kind of knee deep in the complexity of her psychological um, being, I guess. Right, and and not to judge, right? Not to judge and say, oh, like she doesn't get anything right, but but because there's this this value in understanding. Um, how misreading happens and how it builds upon itself, right? And I, I do think, like I said before, right, it's not a book about race. Um, and I'm gonna come back and contradict myself. It's a book very much about like uh, the, I'm gonna be super fancy, racial economy at the time, right? And the way racial concepts were traded and, um, and developed. Um, and she's like in the, all of that, right? Like trying to figure out like where she belongs. And Claire, of course, is um, interrupting this journey right. that she thought she was on. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. Like Claire is this, she's a disruption. She comes in and she screws everything up. Everything that Irene thinks is this goes here and this goes here and this right. goes and up and down and black and white. And then Claire comes in and, and throws it all into disarray, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I was going to just say something about sort of your point, uh, uh, right? So this isn't uh, Caitlin Greenwich's like introduction to the version I have, right? And she talks about how, um, right? Like one of the things she talks about is like passing in like an everyday phenomenon, like happened all the time. It wasn't necessarily spectacular. People did it, but that on the page, right? Sort of had this like different meaning. And she sort of talks about one of the things she says is that like why people took it, why, uh, especially in that era, people took it on. Was that because it challenged, and this is her words, the biological essentialism at the core of the newly developing race theory of the late 19th century, mm-hmm. right? So this kind of speaking back to this notion that, I mean, I think that's kind of interesting, right, Adriana, when you were like, it's not about race, it's about the perception, but it's always about the perception, right? It's mm-hmm. always about mm-hmm. sort of how we that's reach how- our bodies and how we sort of decide 
Absolutely. Whether or not to like pull a gun when you pull people right. over or not to pull a gun when you pull right. people over. Absolutely. Race right. in our culture, you know, in 1920s and in 2020s is not about biology. It's about perception. It's about what can you see and how do you interpret what you see? And mm-hmm. so passing novels are, have a utility for all these years to question um, the legitimacy of understanding racial categories as being immutable and biological right. or even something that you can see, you know, so like there are, there's some really interesting um, novels by, by black writers that combine passing and uh, detection, right. Detective. Mm-hmm. Sort of. So the, the mystery is like, who's mm-hmm. black and who's not. Right. Mm-hmm. In fact, the first, I, I'm not going to be able to remember the name of the author because my brain don't work, but um, the really the first black uh, mystery novel is about passing. It's about oh. racial ambiguity. Mm. Um, it's called Hager's Daughters, and I'm totally forgetting pa- Paula. I can't remember her last name because my brain don't work. But anyway, okay, we'll link to it. We'll look it up. We'll put it in the, yeah. So I think yeah, absolutely that uh, that this is about it is about race, but it's how we experience race in our lives, right? Right. And you, you if you think about it we make judgments about people based on how we see and experience them. Does somebody, does somebody sound black? Right. Somebody look black. Mm-hmm. Right. right. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, I've had, I've had this one sort of defining experience with a person who I did not perceive to be black, who, you know, I was teaching this class or something. And this person came up to me afterwards and said, I'm black. And I'm one of those black people that nobody knows is black. And I was like, mm. Oh, Cause I think I had said something like I'm the only black person in this room. And like, <laughs> I realized never say that again. Never say that you don't again. Know. Right. right. You and, don't know. Yeah. And that's complicated. Right. Cause like the whole notion of passing is that right. Like if partly it's about opportunities and like, um, right. Or like harm is done to you because of how others perceive you. Mm-hmm. Right. And maybe right. you don't have all of those experiences because people don't read you as black. Yeah. Right. So like, I think it's like this interesting thing about like, what is it then? mean to be black right like I think that's like what the novel and gets at it's, it's totally what the novel is worrying through right yeah. I wouldn't even say it gets at it because it that's has true. no that's answers yeah. right yeah. Mm-hmm. it just worries at all of this and so for me like one of the like the most important moments in the novel that sets off the kind of like aching kind of torment that we see throughout the rest of the novel is when um Irene goes to Claire's place um the, the her hotel Um, And she's there with Gertrude and Claire. And then um, Claire's husband comes at the end of that meeting. And so like even before John Bellew, what a name, um, gets there, like we get three versions of passing, right? We Mm -hmm. have Irene who passes on her own, right? She can't do it with her family, but she uses that power when she can. Um, We get Gertrude, who's married a white man who he knows she's black, but like, you know, she's, um, you know, within a white society. Um, Mm -hmm. And then we have Claire, who's totally passed so that her husband doesn't even know. Um, And I think that that kind of conversation, like the, the description of the conversation from Irene's point of view is Right? Like, it's so tense. I'm sitting there going, mm-hmm. oh, my God, I would right. want to be in that room. Yeah. Right, right, right. And and the thing, what I was been, what I've been thinking about 
Claire in terms of, you know, with her husband and, you know, and she's in that world where she's totally passing, but she's trying also to unpass a little bit in the sense that mm-hmm. she's trying to kind of um, reconnect to her, her black roots through Irene and through Irene's social connections, which is part of like, you know, what makes Irene so like, no, you can't do this. I'm worried for you. But Claire's just like, oh, but I want to be around black people. I miss black people. <laughs> and, just, yeah. Yeah. Right. And you, when you, she's with the Irene, uh, like Irene and Brian, like is she, she's not passing or she is passing or she's passing with some people or like she's, cause like Hugh knows, right, yeah. that she's um, mm-hmm. black. And Brian, Brian, knows. Knows. Brian knows. Brian knows. Brian knows. Yeah. So it wasn't like clear to me if like other people. There are lots of situations where it's unclear yeah. to other people, right? But, the, that, but the very end, the, I mean, I think it's important that the, the party at the very end is an yeah. all black party. So okay. everyone there knows. Okay. Right. There's that, that moment better. when is her name Felisa? I think yeah. Felisa. she's like, yeah. and uh, John comes in and she's like, "You are the only white person. white person here." Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I think you know again, like that that the this interaction between and you, maybe you could talk about this, Crystal, too, more. But the interaction between white and black people in a place like Harlem not not un not unusual, right? Like that. Um, I think it's uh, I forget the writer, but it's uh, he refers to it as an interzone, right? Like this mm-hmm. place where black and white people come together, uh, and it's almost unpoliced, an unpoliced space, you know. Um, mm-hmm. Even in private police- spaces, was that true? Say again. Like even in private spaces, or was it just like in like the clubs and things? Or I think even in private okay. spaces. So like this Hugh Hugh guy in the yeah. in the novel is supposed to be Carl Van Vechten, exactly. who was really her friend in real life, right? Yes. Really, Noah Larson's friend, and he was he was friends with uh, you know Langston Hughes and Donald mm-hmm. Hurston. All the great pictures of the Harlem Ooh. Renaissance that are taken in people's houses or whatever. Carl Van Vechten took all those pictures because he was mm-hmm. at those parties, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, okay. Well, in that case, why was it such a big deal? that John saw um, Irene with Felisa. Because so this, this takes us back to that initial meeting with Gertrude and Claire, right? right. John is a person who absolutely hates Black people. Right. That whole conversation okay. is actually okay. really dark, too, and I yeah. mean that yes. for yes. you. Um, you know, this moment, with, I mean, how does he put it? Right? He uses because, the best racial slur that I have oh uh, any, when he calls Black people Black scrimy devils. I mean, oh, I right. love that. I mean, I know it's horrible, but I'm like, that's great. That is like amazing. I have never heard a slur like that in all of literature. The black grimy devils. It's so all of literature, Ty. All of literature. I'm just saying, like, that I can remember right now. I'm just saying. I just sit here, this like old timey white voice going, those black grimy devils. But this is also a moment where I'm going to say, like, um, and I, I I can be sympathetic to Irene, but, like, if you care about someone, right, you you were their childhood friend, and you are in this moment seeing their husband, um, you're, you're seeing the violence, right, in his language, you're seeing the way in which if he knew she were Black, he would act. I, I would be scared for her in a way that would outweigh like any humiliation or, or self-fear actually at that moment, probably. Like I'd be like, and why did Claire want her to know about him in this way? Was she, she, was she expecting him to like come though? Like, oh yes, it? yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, they, yeah, she says it. Wait, 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 hold on. You're saying that she was expecting him to come to the party? Is that what the, is that what you No, think? no, no, to the, the first, the first meeting. Oh her. yeah, like why like, Claire, Claire wanted like her to know. Claire, Claire, Claire orchestrated that. Claire, Claire, so I think I'm sorry to like yell and talk over. 
I'm getting back Hold here. on. Hold I'm on. Like, Shut up. I got to <laughs> But I I mean, I feel this this no- novel for me is like uh it's emotionally complicated right. and 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 ambiguous and I feel ambivalent when I read it because I have both I have empathy for both characters but I also w- want to judge them too and and I and if I, we're being honest like there's ways in which Claire's bad Claire's like when she says like I don't care about anybody but me and I'll do anything to th- get the things that I want all I care about is my desires and on yeah. one hand you're like oh you can't live in a world with people like that but on the other hand you think like but like, don't we all want to be that? Isn't she like the thing? Isn't part of the it of or whatever? What is the? <laughs> well, isn't part of Irene's thing is that she wants to be Claire? Yeah, she wants to have that. Claire, yeah. Claire's free, right? Claire's doing mm-hmm. part of the thing that's scary is that Claire's breaking all the rules and she right. doesn't care what happens. She's taking all these risks, and it's it's really Irene who keeps reminding her, like, what what about your daughter? Right. And I was going to say. Like, yeah. But but this is the thing. They each see each other as the one who's truly free and happy, right? Mm-hmm. Claire sees Irene as free and happy because she's living a truth, right? Yeah. Yeah. And um, Irene sees well, and Claire as she thinks, right? I'm sorry, what? And fear free, right? Right. And um, and Irene sees Claire as free and happy because she's kind of like left their moorings. She's you know moved into this. St- she got what she wanted. I think she says at some point. Okay, so I'm still confused though then. So what was, sorry, so somebody explained to me the significance of John seeing her with Felisa. Is it just that oh, she's like associating I, with black people? Not right. so much that like she is outed as black. So is this, right? is, this is like a trope in passing novels. There's always a moment of um, exposure and what I would call the disaster or the catastrophe, right? So there's this, this notion that if you pass, yeah. eventually there's going to be this moment where you're going to get found out and it's going to destroy everything, right? So right. she has passed. I mean, not intentionally, and there's different kinds of passing, right? I think the kind of passing that Irene does at Claire's house, Irene didn't do that on purpose. She was put in a position mm-hmm. where rather than saying, well, wait, no, I'm black, she just stayed silent, right? So it's sort yes. of passive passing, I guess. What Claire's doing is this active passing. And in order for someone to actively pass, other black people have to be remain silent or not contact them anymore, not be in their social circle, right? Right. Other black people are gonna know because you didn't come from nowhere. But they if they're ever in the position where they could out you. So that's what, what Irene has to deal with in that moment is if I rec- if I say if I say anything to recognize him, to let him know that I recognize him, I'm gonna out Claire. Not only myself, but Claire. But I guess I don't understand if we were saying that socially white folks and black folks did mix. I guess I don't understand why that is such but a not, But not, not Claire's husband. On. Yeah, and, and, not, and Claire's husband, I think the difference is that in certain social and cultural circles, there was this acceptance of kind of, you know, these relationships, but not with Claire's husband because he's like this staunch right, white right, supremacist right, right. racist, right? And so... Um, for 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 their particular kind of example, he's like, no, I'm not gonna take any like any mixing with with black people, right? Right, I get that. So is he sort of assuming that Irene is his kind of wife then? And then if right. he's like, I think yeah, okay. yeah. Yeah. What I was saying before about, you know, like it not being uncommon doesn't mean that every white person did it. It just means right. that some white people did it a lot. 
And mm-hmm. so I think John, uh, John I, I call him John Bello. So I think that his his uh, um, assumption when he's thinks he's in the room with three uh, three other white women is that they're the same kind of white people that he is, and okay. they would never like, be around black people intentionally, right? Okay. Okay. Right. Sorry. So he, he's well, there walking just, down the street arm in arm with Felice. Okay. He's going to think something's up at the very least. What I think is really interesting too, though, is that, so Crystal, you mentioned like, I mean, obviously from our 21st century reading, we're going to read his language and like the particular kind of like hate and vitriol that it involves. And we're like, yeah, no, this man is a white supremacist. He's not just a segregationist, like just, sorry, you know, but you know, he's not a segregationist. (laughs) He's an active white supremacist, right? Like there's just this kind of like overpowering hate in the way he talks. Um, Irene's description of him when he comes in is fascinating, though, because she emphasizes his doughiness, his pastiness, his effeminacy, um, in contrast to when she talks about Brian. And when she talks about Brian, she talks about, oh, he's like, you know, he's a handsome man, but not in an effeminate way, mm-hmm. right? Not in a doughy way. No. In fact, and it's his copper skin that makes him especially handsome, right? That moves him from good looking to like, woo. Um, and so like, there's like, like this fascinating, um, you know, like really, uh, it's not remarked upon. Like Irene doesn't think twice about these assessments she has, hmm. um, but there's a way in which uh the novel, like when you read through Irene's kind of use of color and use of description throughout, except in the case of Claire, whiteness is not a good, right? It's not something that gives beauty or that gives power. It's something that she actually mistrusts. Hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think, you know, again, to go back to, I mean, you are talking about John Bellu, but like the fact that he, I think that the most important thing is he thinks that he can tell. I mean, it's so ironic, right? Or mm-hmm. that he's saying like, when I first married you, you were like a white person and then you're getting darker every single, every year. Right. And, and then, you know, I think it's uh, Irene who keeps saying like, keeps sort of suggesting like, have you ever met a, white, a black person? Like, do you really <laughs> think? And she's, and then she says, well, what if I were black? You know? And he's like, well, no way, because I would never like his, I love his reason. I know you're not black because I would never associate with a black right. person. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Thing, right? Not right, because right. I can see it for sure or because I have proof, but you're not black because I don't hang around black people. So there you go. Mm-hmm. Right? right. When of course he's right. in the room with three black women. <laughs> right. Maybe, yeah. right. Maybe this is a good moment to like. And he has a black daughter. And he has, yeah. black- and has a black daughter. Right. Yeah. It's a good moment to go to the ending, I think, um, after Claire's death, because um, his response is is fascinating, right? Bellu's response. Let's see. I'm trying to find it. It's on 143, but I don't know if that's on the same. Are you just talking about like what he says? He yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> sorry, I'm hesitating to read it because I'm like. Mine, it's on 111, but I don't know what. Um, what uh, it says like the, the gasp of horror and above it, a sound uh, not quite human, like a beast in agony. Mm. Um, and I'm like, is it's sort of a shortened version of the N word, which is why I was like, I don't know if I want to right. say it. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. Um, it says, so that's what he yells, right? Cause that was his like, yeah, very troubling nickname for her. Um, yes. yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So is that what, is that the part you were thinking about? Actually? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Perfect. Thank you. Um, and so what's really interesting to me, just doing like this minor close reading, um, and I thank you for, for bringing it, you know, for, for uh, reading it, Anita, is this sound not quite human, like a beast in agony, right? In losing, in losing Claire, you know, we see his animality, right? We see the ways in which he's not 
fully human. And there's like a, a bunch of different places we could go in thinking through what that means in relationship to his white supremacy um, and what it means in, in, you know, relationship to this desire to control her and contain her. Or and if you if you believe as white supremacists do that you know your uh, superiority is ma- is maintained through purity, like one of the worst things that could happen is that um, you have been intimate with a person of color, or right. you find out that you are one, right? Yeah, right. You know, so and in in the way that sometimes that we that that especially that say white uh, America thinks about blackness, intimacy, and and the encounter with blackness is can be contagious, mm. right? Mm-hmm. So his pain, you know, maybe part of it is because he loved her and it has and feels he has lost her, but part of it is because his certainty about who he is has been compromised mm-hmm. and because his, um, his own oh, racial purity yeah. has been yeah. violated. Yeah. Right. Nice. Yeah. 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 Hmm. Uh, so he is like this sort of like, you know, whimpering animal right. who's been wounded. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is sort of a, tangent, but I was, I did want to kind of talk about um, what I'm going to call reverse passing, right? So this notion of like, right, sort of white folks passing as black or other, um, mm-hmm. probably given every week, I feel like there's another story of somebody being like, actually, um, you know, I'm not Latina, I'm not black, it's like, it's happening. But so I thought those kind of interesting. So this is in the club when she's talking to Hugh, uh, Irene, sorry, is talking to Hugh, and this is 96 in my version. And um, so she says, blah, blah, blah. So I'm trying to think where she says, um, Oh, I understand what you, and this is Hugh. And he says, yes, I understand what you mean. Yet lots of people pass all the time. And Irene says, not on our side, Hugh. It's easy for a Negro to pass for white, but I don't think it would be so simple for a white person to pass for colored. Never thought Mm -hmm. of that. No, you wouldn't. Why would you? Um, So I was just curious about like, A, what she meant, right? Like in terms of kind of what what do you think she's getting at? But also what do we, how do we maybe read, right? Sort of what's happening um, like more recently in terms of like reverse passing and like how in relation to this, what's happening in this novel? I I think what she, I'm, I think what she's referring to is like uh, black people's knowledge of whiteness is, is extensive, right? So one of the reasons why black people can pass as white is because they know, Whiteness. White, whiteness. They know whiteness. You have to know whiteness, and it would be difficult to go in the other direction. But, mm-hmm. but there, it's it's as you say, it happens more and more. And there's like there's actually a really good book called Near Black by Baz Driesinger, which is about white to black passing. And uh, so there's some famous cases. I can't. There's like this famous musician from the 40s and 50s, oh, and wow. I, I can't recall his name right now. But he was Greek. But he basically just mm-hmm. sort of let everybody believe he was uh, black because he played, you know, rhythm and blues music or something like that. Mm-hmm. And there are some other um, examples that she gives that are really interesting. And so I think you know, like in in those cases, actually in all cases where people pass, when black people pass into whiteness, they're trying to pass into you know freedom and privilege, right? Like mm-hmm. they're trying to pass into humanity in some way. I mean, um, when white people pass into blackness, there's some value that they're gaining by doing that as well, or something that right. they perceive, right? Like right. that, and it could be that they assume that it's easier to get a position in academia if you're a person of color, for example, right? right. Something like right. that. Or they could perceive that it will be easier to uh, to be, to make a hit rap song if people think that I'm black or have some connection to blackness, right? right? So, I mean, so there, people are doing it just because, oh, I just like, I just like right. being black better, right? Because anybody in their right mind would recognize that being black is not easier, right? Like that it's not, it's not better in the way that 
you're going to enjoy it because it's just so much easier to do it. Right. So, um, and I, I think in that, uh, I don't know if I mentioned I, this book, I think I mentioned it before we were recording, but it's called your face and mine and, um, by Jess Rowe, who's a white author actually. But in that book, there is, uh, the main character who there's actually a, a, a surgical procedure that will allow peop, a person of any race to become another race. And so a white person becomes black in this book and is one of the main characters. And there's a whole chapter where he explains why he did it. And essentially, it uses a sort of, it's very interesting because he uses the kind of um, argument that someone who um, feels like they are, like they have, a, they're in the wrong body because of gender or something like that. Oh, um, basically says, I've always felt like I was black, essentially, like I was in the wrong body. Hmm. And so it's really sort of like troubling yeah complicated problematic and of course whenever i um, do that book with students they're like oh well, what does this mean in terms of like trans bodies and stuff. Right, right. you gotta get into there but i don't think that this is it's often that i think that's going too far i think that that it's just like you're about, gaining something i think it's about gaining something i think it's about seeing that there's something of value that i could get by becoming black or by letting people think that i'm black and I'm going to do that. I think it's just in the, most of the time in white to black passing, it's a sort of conscious thing. I mean, the feeling like I'm black, therefore I should pretend. That's the Rachel Dalzall story. Exactly. Isn't it? Exactly. The, exactly. And I, I mean, I, so, I mean, I totally agree with you, Todd, about like that actually not being the case, right? There's gain somewhere to be had. No. But it's fascinating to me, this sort of, because a lot of times, if I'm thinking about the Jesse La Bambolera, like that, that, um, <sighs> remember that splash of, mm -hmm. um, Yes. racial yes. passing um a lot of the way in which apparently it felt <laughs> to be a puerto rican uh like uh woman was totally stereotypes right it was right. about like being rosie perez crossed with i don't know like <laughs> j-lo yeah. Lucy, <laughs> Lucy arnez so, okay so why do we find these maybe there's like an obvious answer but like why do we find those troubling in ways that we may or may not find like passing like is it just a more does that not, make sense right like is because i don't think it's also not, questioning like biological notions of race and biological notions of well i think that it's it's not entirely untroubling when black people pass as white i mean i think it's understandable but there is certainly and we get that here there's this notion of betrayal right racial betrayal right. being disloyal and this is part of what uh, Irene is caught up in, right? She basically says, I would never pass, mm -hmm. you know, permanently because I see it as a betrayal to my race. And right. she's caught between her allegiance to herself and to her family and her allegiance to Claire as a, another black person mm -hmm. who has jettisoned blackness, right? right. Mm -hmm. um, for all intents and purposes in her life. And basically, like, what I think the thing that really irks Irene is that Claire just wants to come back. Like right, convenient, right? Exactly. She doesn't really want to live okay. it, right? Right, uh, she just wants no. to come back for the fun times, for the fun times. Yeah, yeah. just for the party. I mean, that's the right. way Irene sees it, definitely, right? But but I think you're getting at something super, like, important here, Todd, which is this, and I've read the betrayal before, but to see it as not just like a, you know, everyday betrayal, right? Like, oh, like, you put me in a situation that I didn't want to be in with your husband, but this kind of like really deep, big betrayal of the whole race of like, you know, like you, you, you don't just get to go out and be white and then come back and expect us all to like accept you. But Claire's found acceptance from everybody, right? Like that's the thing too that irks Irene, that Claire is making her community again. People do see her as part of the community. They want her there. 
Mm-hmm. Ryan invited her to the party that Claire was like, oh, <laughs> I am right. Right. <laughs> he, he likes her too much. I didn't want to invite her because of that. Yeah. Which I honestly bought. I, I had to stop reading at the tea party because I thought something was going to happen to the tea party. And I was like so nervous for everybody and nothing happened. And I was like, oh. Something okay. did happen. Something did happen. Something I mean, nothing did happen. But it wasn't like, I thought like the exposure and like the whole blowout would be at the tea party. At the tea um, party. No, that was the precursor. That was right, like right, right, right. Pattern. Yes, yes. But I was like, I had to stop she reading at the middle of it. Like, nothing's going to happen. <laughs> But so this is, but this is a really important thing, um, Anita, that I think going back to our discussion of modernism, right? Because it is as a modernist novel, sorry, um, it is, it is about her consciousness. It's about interiority and the climax for the interior story is there, right? When she drops the teacup, it's because she's just had this totally probably false uh, like understanding, but like it's her, like, you know, she's had it. She's like, oh my God, Brian's in love with Claire. Yeah. This yeah. explains everything. And she dropped <laughs> the teacup and her world is changed, right? Yeah, like, and I, yeah. I love what she said. She says to Hugh afterwards, like, Hugh's like, oh, I'm sorry, I bumped into you. And she's like, no, let me tell you the whole story. <laughs> this cup came from the South and Brian's been making me, you know, drink out of it. I hate it. And the only way I could get rid of it was to break it into pieces. Yeah, yeah, be rid of it forever. Yeah. I was wondering, okay, Uh-oh. so I want to go back to maybe Claire. You know, when they're like having that conversation about like what's going to happen if you got found out, right? Like if John uh, finds out, because I think it's interesting to think about like what people gain and like these notions of freedom and like if passing into whiteness meant more freedom and meant more. But Claire mm-hmm. kind of reads it differently, right? So on my version, it's one fifty-three. Um, to Irene, blah, blah, blah. So she says, and this Claire says, if she could, right, if she was found out, I do what I want to do more than anything else right now. I'd come to live, I'd come up here to live, Harlem, I mean. Mm-hmm, then I'd be able mm-hmm. to do as I please when I please. So, like, mm-hmm. so for her, actually, like, being, right, so because she's lied to her husband, like, whiteness is more a prison than it is freedom, mm. maybe. Maybe. You know, so, so before the recording, um, Todd asked us, did we want to talk about feminism? And I think you got a resounding kind of, eh? <laughs> um, you know, but now I feel like Anita, the way you've asked the question is really helpful to me because I think that Claire is a figure who, like, yes, whiteness has become a prison, white supremacy has become a prison. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, patriarchy is a prison, right? So there's no way to divorce that the, the John Bellew both has patriarchy and white supremacy um, in at his hands to be able to contain and control her. Mm-hmm. And she sort of unwittingly, like she thought she was gaining privilege, but she basically jailed herself. Her cage is, is a really hard one. And, and I guess like, I'm curious what you guys think, whether in Irene and Brian's relationship, she sees Brian as the one who's caged himself for her. And whether, whether like what that means for how we see kind of containment. And I know I just threw that one boom. <laughs> well, I... And again, I feel like, I mean, maybe this is where I'm going to be like, maybe that's like, it's hard to tell from Brian's perspective, like whether he feels that way. (laughs) Right. So I think this is one place where, like, I feel like Irene has this whole narrative about him and, and maybe he did one time bring up like wanting to live. um, Where did he want to go? Like to England? Yeah. And maybe it was just like, for all we know, he was just like saying that in passing, like, I don't really know. And she just like clung on to that. Um, I'm not Mm -hmm. sure. I think that's like one place where I feel like, Irene does seem obsessed about that, but it's like hard to tell about from like Brian's perspective if that is 
what he's thinking about or feeling. It's certainly it's certainly like a big specter in her mind, right? And I think he right. probably does. Well. I mean, when he talks about, you know, remember when they're talking about there are two places that strike me when it's always having to do with their kids, like the one where the the boy Ted or something has learned some sex jokes or whatever, and uh, she's like, "Please, we don't need to talk about that." And he go he gets all freaked out and like, you know, sex is a big joke. You need to tell him now. Blah blah blah. blah. And then the other time is when one <laughs> of the boys thing. gets called the N word. Oh mm-hmm. yeah. Or no ask. About lynching, and he starts to tell him, and she says, No, I don't want you to tell. Right. And she, he basically says, Well, you made them grow up in this country, I wanted to get them out of this country, yes, right. And so they need to know what goes on here. So I think he does have that. He's he's unhappy, he's unhappy with his job, he's unhappy living That's in a true. country where he has to suffer under racial oppression. Mm-hmm. He thinks that if he were down in Brazil, it would be more free, and that you know, maybe that was true, but but she recognizes that but she also is feeling what that would be like for her she doesn't want to go and i think in so many ways claire is fearful repressed unable to really irene irene is fearful i mean irene yeah Yeah. sorry sorry irene fearful repressed Mm -hmm. unable to really know what her emotions are and just like stuffing them down stuffing them down further and further and further to where they you know might blow up you know Mm. and they do they do blow up right right? well um so like to get to that ending really directly now right um we we can't know exactly what happens um but i think we all agreed we think that um that irene kills claire yeah yeah okay I mean, I did. <laughs> there is a, there's the, uh, there's a famous Judith Butler has a chapter on this book in one of her books. I can't remember which one, but her famous um, theory is that John Bellows. That's why I said Bellows. John Bellows' voice blows her out the window. Oh wow! Accusations of her be, of her blackness blows her out the window. Oh, but wow. I think I think Irene killed her. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, so there are three possibilities if we treat this as a murder mystery, right? Yes. Claire jumps out that window. Mm-hmm. Claire is pushed by Irene. Mm-hmm. Claire is so intimidated by Bellu and his bellowing <laughs> that she and- falls. Right, that his her, his bellow yeah. like yeah. pushes her yeah. over. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah. I have to say, right, the last one, yeah, like, yeah. I kind of love what happened next. A, I mean, like, metaphor, but um, but this paragraph um, really leads me to Irene. And there's there's like we said, there's the, there's really two moments of foreshadowing there's where she breaks the glass of uh, the teacup mm-hmm. and then she, uh, irene opens the window right and irene throws a cigarette out the window and That's watch true. this glowing thing go down into yeah. the snow you know this white cigarette mm-hmm. glowing white cigarette. yes and then Very it goes down nice. into, the, into the snow right mm-hmm. yes yes yeah so i think i mean i think the 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 text is pointing us towards irene irene pushing Okay. Um, and now, Jenna, you cut out. So I don't know which pair for me, at least. So I don't know which paragraph you read. Because um, so it says this is for me on one forty three, and it says what happened next. Irene Redfield never afterward allowed her allowed herself to remember never clearly. And this getting to the Todd's point. One moment Claire had been there, a vital glowing thing like a flame of red and gold, and the next she was gone. Yeah, <laughs> I, I was wondering whether I was going out. Um, so so absolutely right. Like we get the both the beginning of that section where. We see um, the smile maddens Irene. One mm-hmm. possessed her. We get the idea of possession that she doesn't have control anymore, and she couldn't have her free. Right, this free. kind of yeah. like yeah. dominating thought. And then in the post, um, after Claire is, let's face it, tossed over by Irene. Um, <laughs> 
<laughs> but we get the, you know, never afterwards allowed herself to remember. And I think that allowed is mm-hmm. super important yeah. because it really gets at the crux of the whole novel, right? The way in which she doesn't allow herself to feel. Yeah. And her memories are super selective. So it's not that they're untrue, right? It's not that she's mm-hmm. reliable, but it, she is selective. She is yeah. telling us a story that puts herself in the best light. Right. And it's, it's the whole novel. It's a remembered novel, right? I mean, mm. you can think about uh, Irene as narrator. She's telling it's 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 a past tense novel. So everything right. that we're getting is either through it's uh, it's all through the filter of her consciousness, but also sometimes the filter of time and more distant amounts of time. You know, so I think I think you're absolutely right. It they ask her, they basically ask her what happened. What happens, yeah. And she's like, oh, whoa, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> right? So she never well, she, does, she just fell. I mean, she, she does fell. that. She's mm, like, right. she just fell before anybody could stop her. And then, yes, her quaking knees gave Ooh. way under her. She moaned and sank down again, moaned again. But she would never, I don't think Irene would ever admit to herself that she had done that, right? So, I mean, it, as, exactly. as Adriana was saying, it just fits in with everything she's done through the entire novel in terms of her uh, ability to sort of be honest with herself about how she's feeling or to, or to perceive clearly or to read clearly the situation, people, her own emotions. The whole yeah. aftermath is really harrowing, right? Because she worries about what, right. if, what if Claire survived this? Right. <laughs> and, right, um, which, you know, like she also guilt. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so then there's the paragraph and I don't have pages in the Kindle, sorry, but it's right at the end. Irene struggled against the sob of thankfulness that rose in her throat. Choked down, it turned to a whimper like a hurt child's. And then Brian comes and she like, so she replaces this feeling that she is not allowing herself to acknowledge with a feeling that's more socially acceptable and which places her in relationship to Brian so that she can now kind of assume what she thought was Claire's place, right? She thought Brian was like all taken care of Claire and now she can be taken care of by Brian again. And she also says earlier, um, not I guess she, but she says, Irene wasn't sorry. <laughs> she was amazed, incredulous almost. Mm-hmm. What would others think? That Claire had fallen? That she deliberately leaned back? Certainly one or the other, not... <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh. Uh, all right, wow. <laughs> do that last paragraph where it ends the book centuries after she heard the strange man saying death by misadventure i'm inclined to believe let's go up and have another look at that window why centuries i mean i think it's another um Hmm. you know sort of reference to the remembered uh, quality Hmm. of the narrative right Hmm. like uh, and even like losing consciousness and dream state like this kind of dreamlike state that she's in during so much of that last scene i mean like how she gets down the stairs mm. is sort of like semi conscious semi unconscious so i think you know it, it just sort of plays into that notion of her not being fully conscious and kind of experiencing this partly in and out of consciousness. Mm-hmm. Do you think she regrets or feels guilt or feels like she has to atone? What do you think is like the, the kind of Irene that goes forward from this moment? I, I actually think like I've often thought that Irene and Claire are like doubles, right? Like they're basically mm-hmm. two 
parts of the same mm-hmm. consciousness. And that, like, if you read this book, like a little bit Freudian, which yeah, is, is it out of the, like, it's not unre- unreasonable to do, that Claire is basically this um, part of, of Irene's consciousness that needs to be eliminated. And that she does it. And then in the end, maybe she would actually be like a sort of cohesive, single consciousness, right? Right. Um, and because we don't get anything except that last paragraph, we don't get anything further that right. suggests that she was like, oh my God, what have I done? Or anything like that. You can <laughs> right. read it that way. Right. Even, and, mm-hmm. You know, maybe that's not the way she intended. But I, I tend to think that, uh, you know, Freud's still being pretty popular at the, at the time. Oh, absolutely. I think that's a brilliant reading, actually. And like we talked about Claire's name, you know, like this idea of light, lightness or light. Um, And um, Irene, I looked the name up. It's apparently comes from the Greek word for peace. Oh, yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, it does. Right. Sounds like there's a pause. I'm going to move us on to (laughs) sort of, I think that's a good place to wrap it up unless somebody else had something burning to say. I just want to say I love this book. I love this book. (laughs) You said it was your favorite book to teach from the... Like the era, right? Absolutely. Yeah, from yeah. the Harlem Renaissance, for sure. Um, and it was my first time reading it, so I really appreciate it talking about with it, all of you. Uh, so, yeah, let's do a quick round of what you're reading, listening, eating, whatever. Um, Adriana, you want to start us off? Yeah. So I just I saw yeah. um, a movie that's on Hulu today, actually. It's called In and of Itself. It's um, it's a, it's the, it's done by a magician. So it was a stage show. Um, by this guy named um, Delgadio is his last name. And um, like you would, like, I'm not a big like magic fan. Like, I mean, yes, cool tricks and all, but this isn't just a magic show. It's also a show about identity and this relationship between how we see identity ourselves and how others see us. And it is mind blowing and beautiful. And I sobbed, I sobbed. Um, there's There's some card tricks. Those are really cool. But the best <laughs> tricks are the best. No, no, they're they're awesome. But it's the, not with the card tricks and no, just kidding. <laughs> the best tricks are the ones where he engages the audience. And I don't even want to give anything away, but all I would say is I like I didn't know about this movie two days ago, and now I want to shout to everyone, you need to see this. Wow, oh, that's you. that's an endorsement. Wow, okay. Yeah. Uh, Crystal, you want to give us your yeah. ringing endorsement? Uh. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Yeah, it's not really an endorsement, but um, I did recently watch Bridgerton. I kind of got on the Bridgerton bandwagon and watched the first season, and it was very, very, very um, entertaining. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's that's what I recently kind of watched, and then and I did enjoy it. Apparently, they just commissioned like seven more seasons. So. Seven, really? Wow. Something like six or seven. Yeah. I'm like, are they all going to get old and we'll see different generations? <laughs> yeah, that's that's interesting because they they kind of, I think the season wrapped up a lot of the, the loose ends of it. So except for the except for one part that we know who the person is, but the people right. don't know. Who the person is. That's true. Anyway, <laughs> so. you get my drift. <laughs> <laughs> totally. yeah, Thanks, yeah. Crystal. Todd. Uh, so I am preparing to read our next book, which I think you're going to talk about the yeah. prophet. Um, so you'll talk about that in a second. But um, I watched Lovers Rock, which is one of the films that's a part of the Small Axe anthology yes. by Steve McQueen. Yeah, I've heard and- good. 
Lovers, yeah, I've watched two of them, and uh, Lovers Rock I thought was amazing. It's just, it's basically so all these take place in London, and they focus on the on the Afro Caribbean or what uh, uh, Anglo Caribbean community. I don't know what you talk call. What are black people called in in Britain? British black community, <laughs> whatever. But they're British Caribbean. Yeah. British Caribbean. This is how American I am. Like. <laughs> I, when I first, I was telling somebody like, whatever like, they're when called I, over there. Whenever I first uh, like encountered a, a black person with a British accent, I, my world was just ripped open. Boys, <laughs> I was like, "What is happening?" <laughs> and my dad was like, "Oh yes, that is that's something." And I was like, "What?" Anyway, but this you uh, did watch Bridgerton. <laughs> I, <laughs> I did. I watched, I watched the first episode. But Lovers Rock is just about this, um, you know, this this young girl who goes to actually she's sort of like a, maybe in her twenties and she goes to a house party, and um, the whole movie is just like her going there and then the music at the party and people dancing and singing and preparing music, and then a couple of things happen and then she goes home and the music is just amazing and it there are some scenes in it that are just things I've never seen before. Like, like five minutes of, you know, just people singing a song a cappella oh, that they love wonderful. in wow. a dance, on a dance floor or something. Okay. It's no, like I love months. this. Yeah. It's awesome. And the music is fantastic. Mm. It's fantastic. You know, it's, you know, Jamaican stuff from, from the seventies and early eighties. So it's fantastic. Oh, awesome. Awesome. Oh, that sounds great. I do think that it's on a platform that I don't support. So I hope that it comes yeah. tomorrow so I can watch I'm it. Sorry. Cause I refuse to give what's his name, any of my money. Um, <laughs> but uh, I'm also going to talk about what I'm watching. Cause I guess we're all just like, you know, watching things. So I've been watching the Mandalorian with a friend of mine and I'm going to still call baby Yoda, baby Yoda, because that's what he's known as or they are known as on Twitter. So it's been really fun. And it's just been like a fun thing to like, you know, sort of do while lots of things happen around us. Really quickly, Anita, because okay, podcast community, there's a spoiler out there. Yes, I know about the Mandalorian. Do not email Anita. Oh, don't yeah. let her know anything more than she knows right now. She's yeah. still in season one. Yeah. Although yes. we, we always spoil, spoil things. books. We spoil exactly. Right. <laughs> That's our name. <laughs> There's no surprise. That's our name. We spoil for you. You can't spoil for us. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> uh, but we are super excited about our next book, which is The Prophets by Robert Jones Jr. A lot of you might uh, know his work on social media because he goes by Son of Baldwin. And it's gotten like rave reviews pretty much by like everybody. Mm -hmm. So we're very excited. And obviously for the spoilers, every month is Black History Month. But, you know, for the world, I guess it's February. So we're also especially excited to read a book about Black queer love in February. So we're looking forward to reading it and talking about it. Uh, next so everybody Yay. get the book, check it out. And as always, you can find the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, all the places where you can find podcasts. And yes, the vaccine is coming out, but the virus is still going around. So please keep wearing those masks, washing those hands, keeping those six feet away, and stay home. Thank you all for listening and sending you all big virtual hugs. Thanks, y'all. Thank Bye. you. Bye. This has been another brand new episode of The Drip, recorded remotely from the cities of St. Paul, Minneapolis, and Northfield in Minnesota, and the nation's capital, Washington, D.C., the show is written, produced, and directed by Anita Chikator, Adriana Estel, Crystal Moten, and me, Todd Lawrence. We are the All Spoilers Collective. Let's give a special shout out to our mascot team of dogs and cats too numerous to name. 
Our music is by Lord Jordan X of Kansas City, Missouri. And next month, we'll be back to discuss a brand new novel hot off the presses, The Prophets by Robert Jones Jr. If you haven't heard about it yet, you certainly will. Until then, please take care of yourselves and of each other. Peace. Peace.